Well, hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Pie. This is Blaine coming to you from our virtual studio somewhere out there in the Ethernet. And tonight, I get the opportunity to introduce you to, well, in a lot of ways, first of all, she's not an Appalachian, but she seems to have settled into the area and gotten really comfy with it. But she's an accomplished storyteller, she's a runaway, she's a little bit of, well, hell, screw it. We'll let her tell her story. Vara, thank you for joining me today. Everyone, please meet Vara. And Vara, please meet everyone. Hi, everyone. So, how are you doing this evening? And thank you, by the way, for the wonderful meal. <laughs> You're quite welcome. I'm doing very well, thanks. I'm, how are you? I'm doing well as well, you ma'am. You I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> I might go back for seconds here in a little bit. All right. But um, if you don't mind, we'll just jump in real quickly to kind of touch base on some of the meat and potatoes of your background. I know I just alluded to one thing, but we can get there. But since you're not an Appalachian, where exactly do you hail from? And for that matter, what was your upbringing like? I am what they call a damn Yankee. <laughs> I was born and raised in New York City, and I came here, and I never left. And when was that? Uh, Well, actually, that's a lie, because I came here in 2003, and I did go back to New York knowing that I would move back here, and I have been here ever since 2008. Oh, very cool, but growing up in New York, I mean, you're talking like New York City proper, if I'm recalling correctly. You are correct. What part of New York was it? Um, I have lived in the outer boroughs of the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens. I've never actually been a Manhattanite, but New Yorker still. So, I guess just to paint the picture for people, because I know you're good with words, I mean, what... What was it like growing up there for people that not may not be familiar with, I guess, those various burbs of it and everything? Um, it's a lot like what it's not like to be here. <laughs> I mean, it was a, a lot of hustle and bustle, as you'd imagine. Um, there was always stuff to do, always trouble to get into. There, it was never quiet. I was, in a, as a teenager, um, I took advantage of uh, the, the nightlife in the city, which I don't think is as easy to do when you grow up down here in, in Actually, these parts. If you don't mind me interrupting you for just a second, because I just thought about this um, with that new show that came out and everything. What was New York and, I guess, everything like versus the seediness that they're showing from the 70s and the early 80s and all? Was that during the time that you were growing up? Yeah, I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, so I got to watch it go from all of those really grisly, gritty images of the graffitied subway cars to the Giuliani and post-Giuliani era of New York City when they came in and disney Times Square. disney <laughs> I love um, that term. Pretty much turned it into the playground for the rich that we know New York City to be now. 
So basically, you grew up during the time when it was still um, like the Warriors or something. <laughs> the Warriors was uh, probably a little earlier than my time, but yeah, it was it was still pretty. Hey, rough. let me date myself, all right? Of course, of course. I was probably born around the time that movie was made, so let me date myself a little bit. <laughs> So you said you got into the nightlife and all. I guess that can kind of lead up because I've come to see you a few times at these various story slams that you host, and you're you're quite the accomplished teller, and I do want us to get into that, but there's one story that I want to touch on before we totally get to that stuff, and it's about, I guess, when you chose to step away do your own thing, and if I recall correctly, too, from, and mind you, my reflection could be wrong here, you, you got in with drugs or people that were involved with drugs and ended up running away or something, what what was that all about? Yes, to a lot of that. I had a pretty complicated family life. Um, and for a long time, I endured it as best I could, and ultimately it came down to me just having to choose to keep enduring or survive, and I chose to survive. Uh, my father was, um, yeah, my, my father was a narcissist, and my mother was a codependent, and the dynamic between them made things really difficult for me. And I'm sure um, being a teenager had had its role to play in that, too. But by the time I turned 18, um, I could not take it anymore. So on a Wednesday night, I was wearing my pajamas and carrying my school books. And I walked out of my parents' house. And... Well, I don't there. know that we can call you a runaway then if you were 18. I was under the impression you were like 16 for some reason. Nope, it was three days after my 18th birthday, so technically I was an adult. Okay. I was still in high school. Um, and if my father were alive to this day, even at the age I am now, he would still think that I was his property. So <laughs> 18, 17, 16, it didn't matter. But yeah, I was still in high school, but a legal adult, and it wasn't an accident that it happened that way. But um, I left, and that night my father put my mom in his truck and drove her down to Hunts Point, which you may recognize from the HBO series Hookers at the Point. I was not at Hunts Point. I was around the corner from their house at my friend's house talking to her father, who was a lawyer, about my options and how to get on with my life without my parents. Um, but just to give you an idea of what my father thought of me and how kindly he treated my mother, um, that might give you some insight into why I felt like I had to leave. I really wasn't planning on you going down that road. I did remember that from previously, but okay. So what about the whole drug thing and all? I mean, was it like something where you were doing like some hardcore stuff or the people you were associating with were? Or? Yeah. Um, well, I was working two jobs at that time and school sort of fell away from the top of my priority list. I had been a top achieving student all my life, so um, I was able to work things out with my teachers 
um, so that I would be able to graduate. And the acceptance letters from college were already rolling in. Some scholarship money came my way. So I was determined to still plow straight through all of this stuff and go on with my life in a productive way. Um, but along the way, having that first taste of freedom and needing to kind of compensate for that, those feelings of angst and everything else I had been having inside all that time. Um, yeah, when I was on my own, I, I liberally took advantage of my freedoms and both friends from childhood and new friends, um, we just all got involved in partying and some of it was great and some of it was far less than great. And I think what you might be alluding to is the way that I spent my last week of high school. Is that the part of the story That's that you were going That's part for? of it. Yeah, but, yeah. And I don't want you to pussyfoot around it. I'm sure the statute of limitations is well <laughs> expired. And on top of it, there's no point in using actual names. So, you know, feel free. <laughs> sure. So um, one of the jobs that I was doing at the time was telemarketing. I was selling mortgages on the phone. And I uh, was doing okay at that, but my buddy wasn't. <laughs> and um, I, our boss called us both into the office one day to fire my buddy and then told, looked at me and told me, you're actually doing a pretty good job, but you can't get here without him, right? And I'm like, nope. He said, so you're fired too. Oh, shit. So what we did was we went down to Harlem and picked up a few pills of ecstasy that were really heavy on the smack side and from there we kind of went on a bender um with those pills and when those pills were gone we just went straight for the smack <laughs> and we spent the last week he also was graduating senior um and we spent the last week of high school together snorting heroin in his basement and one day we were sitting there on his bed, petting the suede paint on his wall. And he looked at me and went, ah, Vara, we're junkies. <laughs> so, <laughs> he was right. So um, we just kind of shuffled out the door, walked the six blocks to school and decided that that would be probably the best place to be at that time. And yeah. <laughs> at, least, at least you recognized it only a weekend. <laughs> only a weekend. Really fortunate. Really, really fortunate. Because over the next few months, um, while I was preparing to leave for college, I watched one of our friends overdose in the backseat of that friend's car. And just a lot of other really dangerous and sometimes fatal things were happening to the people around me. So I consider myself very fortunate that I got out of there when I did and that I'm here to tell this story now. Right. And, you know, let's just fast forward a little bit, too, because I didn't realize that we'd already been talking for almost 12 minutes and everything. Um, let, let's get back to either 2003 or 2008, your choice. What, what made the Appalachian region, particularly Asheville, something that you felt like you really wanted to be a part of enough that you chose to come here and become a, a vibrant part of the community? Well, in 2002, um, I took a road trip through 38 states in 
two and a half months looking for the place that I would call home. New York City, you know, New Yorkers were always raised to assume that there's no place else that anybody would rather be. So I always took it for granted that I would graduate from high school and go to school in the city and live this little boho Greenwich Village life. And when that came to pass, um, it was the last thing I wanted and I wanted to get out of New York. But being a New Yorker, I didn't know of anywhere else that was worthwhile. So I decided to go traveling, looking for that place. And I visited a friend from high school who had landed in Asheville after leaving AmeriCorps. And driving from Virginia Beach that morning, it was a really long drive across Route 58. And when I got to the Blue Ridge Parkway, um, it was closed about 40 miles down. So I had to turn around and drive 40 miles back. So by the time I actually made it to I-40, uh, heading west, I had no gas, and I was slap happy and just giddy from being exhausted. And it was pitch black. It was 2.30 in the morning, and I drove over the hill at Old Fort. And even though I couldn't really see anything, I had no idea where I was. It was this this really ineffable feeling that washed over me that made me feel like I was home. So when I woke up the following morning at my friend's house and walked outside and saw what I actually was surrounded with, it was kind of a foregone conclusion that I'd be here. So I had one more year of college left. I still, just to make sure, I did end up traveling through quite a few more, maybe 20 or so more states before after leaving Asheville. And... Um, yeah, as soon as I was able, I moved here after graduating. Nice. And that actually brings up another really good point, because you kind of came into things with the storytelling and all a little bit later, but you had another profession before you kind of took off more with the artistic side of things. I've had several professions, um, but on paper, I am a licensed English teacher. And that happened when I left here in 2005. It was to go back to New York and be with my mom at the end of her life. And while I was in New York, I decided that coming back to Asheville with a teaching degree would not hurt me. So I decided to go to graduate school. And while I was there from 2005 to 2008, I got a master's in English and a master's in education I came back here and I taught seventh grade language arts, <laughs> and then I taught high school English, and then I was teaching at AB Tech for several years, and I still do teach writing, so mostly to adults now. So what's your experience been like dealing with this um, uncultured, uneducated hicks then, coming from the big city and your educational background? You know, it's funny you say that because... You might not know this, but there are plenty of hicks in New York City, too. Um, there are a lot of a lot of people, Manhattanites, those people we think of as being so hoity-toity, who have actually never left Manhattan before, who, because they take it for granted that the museums and monuments are all right in their backyard, they've actually never visited any of them. So as far as being uncultured, I, I, I can't say that that's unique to any one particular place. Um, I did have the benefit as a teacher being trained in New York. Um, one of my assignments was at a school that had an open permission slip for all their students. So if we were talking about something and there happened to be an exhibit at the Whitney and we just wanted to stroll over there with the kids to make a point, we could. And that was fantastic. Oh, wow. We can't do that here so easily. Um, but I mean, kids are kids. I, 
I love teaching and I love teaching kids and I love teaching adults. So the accent is different, but teaching is, you know, you just got to love them and show them how much you, you care and maybe one or two of them will care back. (laughs) Exactly. And that's something too, that I think is great. And just kind of getting on with things to get to the, um, pardon me, the storytelling side of your artistic expression and all, you you actually have at least one, I'm wanting to say two, I could be misremembering, but you host or co-host, I'm not sure how to call it, a story slam here for amateur storytellers to get up and be able to tell whatever story they choose on a particular theme for up to 10 minutes. And then I believe it was the fourth or fifth one that I was at that it came out that one of the people that was up there on the stage that had just finished was someone you had taught as a child. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm actually really fortunate that many people who come to participate at Synergy, young and old, um, I've had the privilege of calling them my students. So the person you're talking about, I think, um, yes, he was actually in my seventh grade class. Uh, He's one of, I think, five of my former seventh grade students who've gotten up on the Synergy stage. And I mean, I don't have kids of my own, but that's as close as I can get to feeling like a proud mama is when my kiddos get up there and, you know, test their limits and try something new and feel proud of themselves when they're done. And that's pretty kick-ass. It's just as rewarding when folks who are twice my age get up and do it also to watch adults come in and be vulnerable and ask for help with telling their life stories. I mean, that's... That's huge. So then to see them get up in front of a, a stage of full of people, a room full of people, strangers, and and do the same thing is, is pretty great. So now that we've gotten Synergy involved in this narrative, um, <laughs> w- once you're done smoking whatever you are, um, <clears throat> what was the impetus for you to start it up or what's the way you handle that storytelling thing because i know it's a little bit more amateur but you've got some much um higher ribbons i'm not sure that i'm saying this correctly you you, you've got some chops that are above just the amateur thing that you're doing um your words not mine um i would actually call synergy more of a homegrown event than an amateur event because we're all professionals at our experiences in our lives and whether you've done it a thousand times or this is your first time doing it getting up there it's it still takes the same amount of guts and the same amount of bravery and the same amount of vulnerability and authenticity so um the difference between synergy and maybe a larger event say like the moth is that um we encourage people to take any risks they feel comfortable with and we applaud and we celebrate them no matter what. Um, we don't have a mic linked up to New York city or a a podcast or a radio show. Um, none of those things are at stake for folks at synergy. So we like to make sure that what happens at synergy stays at synergy and that they can feel comfortable to express themselves. As far as how I got involved, 
Um, I don't know if you realize, but Synergy has been around for about five or six years now. It was started by Finn Crooks. No, I wasn't aware. Another phenomenal storyteller here in Asheville. Um, it was part of her graduate work, I believe, at ETSU in their storytelling program, and she's moved on to other things. She passed it along to, I believe, Grayson Morris was after that, and she's off doing phenomenal things out in the comedy world. And um, from there, Todd Lester took over, and Todd kept Synergy afloat for quite a while until um, I was at the Moth Light and at the Moth for a show there. Hmm, I guess it's been a little over a year and a half now. Yeah, and Todd told a really touching story that resonated with me, and after the show, I introduced myself, and he suggested I give it a try, so without his encouragement, I probably never would have gotten on the stage, and it was just a few weeks after that that I got up and told my very first story at Synergy about being a hospice volunteer, and it was just a few short months later, at the encouragement of our friend Ray Christian, that I pluck up the courage to get on the moth stage, which was a crowning moment for me as a writing teacher, a memoir writing teacher. I've been using the moth as a teaching tool for many years. As a New Yorker, I'd sit on the subway with my headphones on listening to the moth, so to actually be on the stage was pretty surreal, and it just so happened that that night I won the slam with a story about punching a fireman in the face. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, um, well, actually I didn't know that part whatsoever. So you threw me for a loop on this one. Um, <laughs> but you brought up our mutual friend, Ray. He's also been a moth winner multiple times mm-hmm. and all that. Um, you guys kind of travel within a similar, I don't want to say circuit, but similar circles. Um, there's also another gentleman that we know who you also have not only performed at, but helped to promote his events and everything, both here in Western North Carolina and Northeast Tennessee, uh, Mr. David Joe Miller. And I know that he's been very influential in building the storytelling festival out of Jonesboro, Tennessee, but... I believe something that you and I touched base on a little bit earlier was the fact that you're actually going to be going there. Is this like your first time there? Or? It is. It is. I actually have the privilege of having been chosen as a finalist in the National Story Slam next weekend at the festival. Um, again, at Ray's encouragement and, of course, with David Joe's support. Um, you know, <laughs> there's really, there's really not enough that can be said for having people whom you admire who do the work that you do and who whose work you respect and who are just wonderful people who then see something inside of you and believe in you. And I can't tell Ray or David Joe enough just how much I appreciate their support and their believing in me. I've never had anybody believe in me before. So it's been pretty extraordinary, and from that very first time I got on the stage at the Moth to next weekend and any performance I give after that, I feel in some way like the main goal of getting up there is doing my story justice, and somewhere right off to the side of that is to make those guys proud. So what was the draw to storytelling itself then? 
I've been through some shit. <laughs> I've been through a lot. And having come from the background that I come from with a really controlling father and a really controlling mother um, after they died and I went through grieving and dealing with that loss, I realized that a big part of getting better from all of that would be to reclaim my narrative and to own what has happened to me and to make vulnerability into my superpower. <laughs> well, that's really cool. And actually, I think it's another thing that's really wonderful and speaks volumes to your character is the fact that just with your background in teaching, mentoring, whatever, I know that you've offered to me to help out with coaching so that I will get up on the stage soon and actually kind of take a stab at it. But what I guess what what does that part of it feel like? Just the fact that I think you said five of your previous students or more oh, have been least. there. I mean, <laughs> that that's just got to be an amazingly weird, wonderful feeling all at once. Uh, if you were to try to tell someone not only what that feeling is, and I know you kind of alluded to it as a proud mama, but to be perfectly honest, you've also got to feel like a proud sister, a proud best friend, everything else. Yeah, there is definitely a lot of, of pride involved in that. But really what it speaks to is that community you alluded to earlier in that storytelling is is something so much larger than just me and just synergy and just the moth. It is the entirety of the human experience and encouraging people to participate in that for the sake of, you know, humanity, <laughs> but even more so on a personal level, there's something really liberating about being up there and letting go. And even though I get up on stage and black out and forget everything that I've said until it's over, um, there is some so much catharsis um, in sharing and in relating to people and to invite people in. Um, well, and I think, too, that's one thing that storytelling kind of lends, and especially your all's approach to storytelling. It lends a lot more validity and humanity to the storyteller when they are as openly truthful and vulnerable as what you guys are doing and that to me is very endearing and i'll admit i'm that same geek driving around with headphones on listening to the moth whenever i can so yeah um there it, it really is it really is a, a strange great feeling because everybody has the stage fright and the nerves and the self-doubt and all that um and it's amazing you say oh 10 minutes that's a really long time but it goes by so quickly when you're up there and you're just speaking from the heart and telling your truth and just like when you teach seventh graders when you get up in front of an audience they can smell the bullshit so it's always best to be honest and in the introduction we always remind folks that the best stories have authenticity vulnerability and stakes it's really important to get up there and convey to your audience that there was something to lose in your story um and that's how you get 
people in. The folks in the audience may not be getting up there to tell, but they are experiencing their own memories or their own experiences through hearing yours. And there's a concept, um, there's a whole podcast actually that's based on the concept of a second story. And that's when you hear somebody tell their story and it makes you think of your own story. Um, every month when we have the event at the end of the night, at least one person says, Oh, I have this great one. I could have told for this theme. Um, and really that's us just kind of knitting together the human fabric just a little bit tighter. No, that's great. And, you know, actually you made me think about it just a little bit more because, um, the fact that you've influenced people that you've worked with and helped grow and everything, it, if you were to be able to just give anyone some advice, whether it be an octogenarian or a teenager or preteen or whatever, the, I guess, what would be your speech or how would you encourage them? What would your advice be to tell people that it's cool to get their own words out and their truth out because it just seems like nowadays we're stifled in every direction it doesn't feel like anything that you have to say matters until you finally stand up and say yeah fuck yeah it does (laughs) i mean that 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 pretty much is it right there just making sure that everybody realizes how much they matter and that especially in storytelling but in life in general like nothing really needs to be perfect and getting up on stage at synergy especially knowing that a crowd is going to welcome you and celebrate you when you're finished um there's really not much to lose um my advice to someone who would be thinking about telling a story is to tell the hardest story to tell um when i sit down to write a story or to prepare a story for a show the one that comes out is usually not the one that i sit down and intend to write Um, oh really a lot of the time the story tells me um what wants to be told not to say that i make stuff up but the story that i think i'm ready to tell is often just a decoy for the one that's really trying to get out Wow. I actually just spoke to a musician who was kind of telling me a similar story where she was writing a song that was supposed to be based on one of our local legends here. And as the song started to kind of fill out and everything, she realized the song had life of its own. And it wasn't going to be the way she intended for it to. And I guess I'd never thought about it that way. That's a cool perspective. And a lot of the times, also, um, I find the stories come out more easily and the finished products are better when I'm revealing things that ordinarily I would not think to reveal. (laughs) So my advice is to just give it a try, tell the hard story, and don't even worry. Because for me, I look at my stories... Excuse me. <laughs> and I'm always... She's an cons- Appalachia. It's a black lung. Trust me. <laughs> I'm always concerned that I'm going to somehow portray myself as a victim or in some way 
make myself look a way that like painted in a negative manner you doing it to yourself I'm, I'd almost rather make myself the bad guy in my stories than try to make myself look like the good guy so for example the story I'll be telling in Jonesboro next week is about leaving a terminally ill friend on the side of the road this is not a story where I come out glittery and shiny. It is not the proudest moment of my life. And that, I think, is what makes it a good story in this case. <laughs> that makes sense. No, I get it. Because it's like, to, to borrow a lyric, it's harsh reality. It's the truth. I mean, sometimes people do and say dumb things or something that they end up regretting down the road and it's still the truth yeah and that's what the audience will respond to and that's what will in essence at the end give you that that cathartic feeling um it's so for me when i sit down to tell about something that happened i i labor at making sure that i don't come out smelling rosy Nobody wants to hear the story of how well you did or what a great person you are. Hi, I'm Polly Perfect. Exactly. Um, when I taught memoir classes, I would tell folks, it's a boring story if you just tell, tell people how you make the best milkshake. But once you start pouring some bourbon in it, people will start listening. So take that as you will. <laughs> Sorry, you got me laughing on that one. <laughs> Well, I guess the hospice thing that you're talking about doing in Jonesboro, is that like the most, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, derogatory story that you've ever told about yourself, or is that no, just... No, I will correct you. It's, it's not the same story as the hospice story. Um, this one is about, it's still about caregiving. Oh, I thought you said it was a hospice patient the on the first, side of the room. It was a terminally ill friend, actually. Oh, terminally time. ill. My, My bad. My first story on stage was yeah. about hospice work that I do. Okay. But, um... I'm sorry, could you repeat your question? <laughs> <laughs> was the story that you're planning on telling in Jonesboro... Mm -hmm the most um, derogatory oh. towards yourself that you have ever done? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think so. Maybe. I'll leave that to you. I'll let you listen to it sometime, and you can tell me what you think. I, was, I wasn't letting myself get away with anything in that story. Um, it was a time in my life that, at the time, I felt very differently about what, was, what I was going through than I do about it now. And um, I wanted to make sure that I was as honest about it in both ways. So setting up the story, it sounds like a love story, which it even wasn't <laughs> at the time. And then at the end, um, I come off pretty bad. <laughs> at least I think so. And I'm okay with it. Well, um, pardon the maniacal look in my eyes while I say this, but I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> in other stories, um, it's amazing because I'm not a violent person by any means, but violence does factor into several of my stories. So I guess that gets at the part of me looking for those times that I don't come out smelling so great, like the, the fireman. Um, it's a gray area because he touched me inappropriately 
And um, if you listen to that story close enough, you might hear an allegory about rape culture, or you might hear a story about a 22-year-old girl, you know, getting wild on the town one night trying to show off for her friends. Um, depends on where you're coming from. I've also told at the Moth a story about uh, my hairy armpits, and I told a story at uh, Listen to This, at Tom Chalmers' show a couple months ago about clocking someone over the head with a flashlight when I used to drive a taxi. So, um, yeah, there's many facets <laughs> so now that are all, revealed in my stories. Well, I was going to say, with all these stories you're alluding to, um, and I know that we're starting to get a little bit tight on the time and all, do where would people not only be able to track down these stories, but if they were to want to get in touch with you or anything else or just follow your career, what would be the best avenues for them? I actually have a website launching in the next few days, and you will be able to find me at both varacooper.com and exquisitefailures.com. I have a gallery of audio from some past performances. I'll also be keeping a blog there of written stories. Oh, you're keeping all this on the website as well? Yes, I am. Oh, okay. And my contact info, links to Facebook, Instagram, it'll all be on there. Oh, very cool. So... We're saying just a couple of days, and by the time this comes out, it'll probably be right in the couple of months time frame. <laughs> Are there any other big festivals or anything else that you're planning on going into the end of 2017? October is looking pretty exciting, starting off with Jonesboro next week. And then after that, we have Synergy. Our theme this month in October will be Void, uh, Stories of Darkness and Dissolution. Um, and then the moth will also take place in October, as always. And then on October 30th, we're having the inaugural Asheville Moth Grand Slam, which I am really excited to be a part of with some of Asheville's best storytellers participating that night. It's the kind of show that whoever wins, we all win because it's going to be great. Very cool. Well, I just wanted to thank you again, thank not you, only Blake. for joining me, but for actually for several things. One, the fact that you were willing to not only speak to me, but two, the fact that you've offered up to help coach me so that I can feel a little bit more comfortable to hop up on the Synergy stage I cannot at wait some to time. hear your story. <laughs> but thirdly, and probably most importantly... As a vegetarian, I truly appreciate the fact that you cooked me fried chicken this <laughs> evening. My pleasure. <laughs> well, thank you again, ma'am. It's been my pleasure as well. Thank and you, we sir. will catch up in a bit. All right. <laughs> Bye. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed the conversation that I got to have with Vara and just kind of get a feel for what she was doing down here in Appalachia and everything. And unfortunately, I just may as well tell you this, guys. She and her man, who she lovingly refers to as Old Goat, they unfortunately had to move due to life circumstances off of their spot up on Hound Mountain and have relocated, still kind of in Appalachia, up towards Pennsylvania and everything. But 
I'm sure that she'll be doing wonderful things up there. We're keeping in touch, and the storytelling event that she's hosted down here for a couple of years is still going strong. You can see me there. I've actually brought a couple of friends that are really interested in starting to tell their own stories. So, yeah, we'll try to keep the dream alive for her and everything, and... Of course, you can always track me down at appypie14 at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook, give us a thumb in or whatnot, uh, website. Um, yeah, I'm not at all proficient in dealing with anything like that, but it's out there and it's a complete joke in my opinion. But if you choose to look it up, it's appalachian-pi.com. And you can find us rebroadcast now on Saturdays on milehighradio.com. I believe the time slot is 7.30 in the evening for that. And as part of another group of people that I've been able to collaborate with and now doing some work with some audio dramas and things like that, I'm part of the TFAO union. If you ever choose to look it up, it's hashtag TFAUUNION. T-F-A-U-N-I-O-N. And, yeah, we'll catch you in a little bit. Take care. We do love you. Bye. You can kill me. I will not die. Not now. Not ever. No, never I'm gonna live A long, long time 
my records. They won't tell me when I can drink and what I can drink. They want to ban drugs and sex and everything. People want to have a lot of rules. A lot of rules and regulations. But listen up. Listen up, Mr. Rules and Regulations. I ain't gonna obey it! That's right, man. I ain't gonna do what you say. Oh, you can put me in jail. You can kill me. You can execute me. But you can't kill rock and roll, man. I'll tell you another damn thing. I ain't eating no more fucking McDonald's either. I ain't gonna eat it no more. I ain't gonna eat it because it don't taste good. You know what? McDonald's, you kiss my butt! McDonald's, kiss my butt. It's a great big hairy butt. Got a dingleberry hanging off my butt. McDonald's, kiss my ass. You know, people say, Mojo, you're always complaining about everything. Why don't you vote in the election? Why don't you become involved in the electoral process? Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Vote for Clinton, Mojo. It's going to make everything nice and new and neat. We got one fool, just as big a fool as the other fool. Ain't nothing changed. Same fools riding around in the black cars. We still riding around on the subway, riding around in the bus. We riding around in a 1978, you know, 1978 El Torino or some damn thing. Leaking all, ain't got no money. Gotta pay taxes, everything's screwed up. I ain't gonna take it no more. I'm gonna start an armed insurrection. I'm gonna go to Hills, West Virginia, and I'm gonna liberate some guns from a National Guard armory. And I'm gonna start armed revolt because at some time in the course of human events, it becomes necessary to disassociate yourself the ties that bind. I'm gonna break them ties. I'm gonna bust them up. So there I am standing around a campfire in the hills of West Virginia. And the flames are shooting up high. And I happen to be the head of the armed insurrection of Rebel Alliance. And I'm going to sing our brand new our brand new national anthem to go something like this. You can't kill me. I will not die. Not now. Not ever. No, never. Wow. I'm going to live a long, long time. My soul is on. Full of holes, but you can't kill the spirit of rock and roll, baby!